At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. I'm Dale Luganville, your host. Thank you very much for joining me. Quick reminder, don't forget to share these episodes, rate, review it if you haven't done so. I haven't bugged you in a while about that, but I appreciate it. It really helps get the word out there. Also, if you are thinking about doing a spring snow goose hunt in South Dakota this year, uh, sooner than later, give Dean at Premier Flight Outfitters a call because the first week's already booked, and if how outdoor recreation has been during COVID times is any indication, and I believe it will continue on into the spring, it's going to be busy, so you're going to want to book those trips sooner or later, and uh, I'd like to hunt with you, so when you call Dean, let him know you want to hunt with me, and uh, let's share some field time together, smash some snows, and have a good time. All right, let's get to today's episode. My guest today is a young man named Tyler Olrog. He is a, or I should say, he used to be a uh, fisheries biologist and a fly fishing guide. He is currently now a fly fishing guide. Um, so we kind of get into some deep topics about the uh, fish biology and what all that means. And uh, just a pretty cool, pretty cool story. He's a uh, a fairly young gentleman, and he's uh, already kind of knows where he wants to go in life, and he's doing it, so pretty inspirational. So check it out right here. We have Tyler Olrog on the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. Oh, here we go, boys. Go. that sound this is a good one and we are rolling all right i'm sitting here with tyler olrock i think i said that right it's just like it's spelled right cool well appreciate you coming on the show taking out time we're trying to schedule this but we've you know we're busy people hardest thing i've I've said it time and time again in the show like the hardest thing about this podcast or having a podcast is scheduling getting people to commit and then hammering down a time and then keeping that time i've had to cancel on times other people have had to cancel on times for a score of reasons it's just how it is it just goes along with the territory but here we are uh finally get to talk to you um 
I found you on LinkedIn, which is a, a platform I don't use a ton. I'm trying to use it more, um, mm-hmm. not only for the podcast, but I also guide here in Minnesota, ice fishing guide in the winter and then a bass fishing guide in the summer. I also do um, goose hunts in the fall and the spring. So I thought that would be a good platform to, as a more professional platform to kind of reach out. That's mm-hmm. where I stumbled upon your page and uh, the you were a fisheries biologist at one point in time, and that's kind of what first caught my eye because I've been trying to get um, reach out to some fish biologists. I like to do some deep dives on uh, mm-hmm. on issues and stuff like that. And then in talking to you, found out that you're a fly fishing guide. You no longer live on the East Coast. Now you're in Montana. So there's a whole host of stuff that we that we can talk about. Um, so what I'm going to do is kind of send it over to you and um, – Let's just find out who Tyler is. Yeah, it's kind of been a wild ride since college. I've done the biologist thing. I've done the guiding thing. Uh, really enjoyed both of them. Um, I had on Montana. I did a stint uh, in Colorado for about nine months, I'd say, uh, this past year in 2020. And then I lived in Pennsylvania probably for four years since I graduated college to when I graduated college and I worked my first fisheries biologist job down there as well. Um, originally from Buffalo, New York, go Bills. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've kind of been all over the place and done a whole bunch of different stuff in the last four or five years. Cool. I don't know why. Um, anytime someone says Bills, I just think Doug Flutie. I don't, that's like the only <laughs> thing that sticks out in my mind yeah. <laughs> and that ages me. I realize that, but yeah. uh <laughs> I haven't really been, I'll be honest, I have not been paying attention to the NFL this year since the Vikings were eliminated from uh, any sort of playoff pictures, which we pretty much eliminated ourselves in about week four. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I know it has been not a good year for the Vikes anyways. Um, are the Bills in it? The Bills are in it. We're oh, okay. playing to make it to the AFC Championship right on, on Saturday. Okay. Oh, well, you're going to be, I think the Browns are making a move. I got. I got to yeah. I mean, no offense against you or the Bills. I, ha- I honestly have no opinion of them one way or the other. Um, probably would root for them just because they haven't been there and for forever. But the Browns haven't been there in like, a, be- like the time before time. So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I think they kind of. Yeah. I think they're kind of my underdog that I'm rooting for this year. But we'll see what happens. It's not going to mm-hmm. be the Patriots, so who cares? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> We're finally going to get a different Super Bowl. Thank God. Um, so you're from New York, and then Pennsylvania is not too big of a move. And what, what facilitated that? Was there just a better like um, fisheries biologist program in Pennsylvania than you would have found in New York? Yeah, so there's not really that many undergraduate programs for fisheries biology. Um Kind of the two in New York are like SUNY ESF, which is like a branch campus to Syracuse University, and then SUNY Cobleskill, which is over by like Albany. Um, and so I went to Mansfield University, which is actually like just across the border in Pennsylvania from New York. And so it was actually the closest one to my house, um, even though it was in a different state. Sure. So the close proximity, plus I really liked the professor when I went there and met with him. Um, he's a super knowledgeable guy and so I just ended up going there. Well, I think um, I'm pretty sure the U of M here in Minnesota has a pretty good uh, fisheries biologist program, marine biology program, which makes sense, line of 10,000 lakes. Hmm. Um, yeah. You think it would 
but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, depends on who you ask if they know what they're doing or not. It seems like everybody has a, a negative opinion of the of the DNR and biologists. They're all the uh, Monday morning quarterback biologists out there know better, right? I suppose you. Yeah, once, once you buy that fishing license, you know it all. You know it all. I'm sure you've run into <laughs> it. I, I guarantee you, you've run into it. Um, what kind of projects were you working on out there in Pennsylvania? So when I was in Pennsylvania, um, I got to work with trout, which is awesome. You know, I'm absolutely addicted to trout fishing and all that. So basically what we did, like any angler that goes like blue lining, like I would look on a map on like GIS software, I'd find a blue line and say, hey, this water's unassessed. We have this big database. And we were essentially getting paid via uh, the oil and gas industry. There's a big uh, gas industry of Pennsylvania and some of the mitigations from the uh, the damage that they have actually done to the land is that they pay for a, a biologist to assess these stuff. So that's actually how I was funded. Um, we would just show up to these streams with electroshocking equipment. We would explore them, see if they had trout, re- record the data and all that. Um, and more often than not, we found trout, which was really cool. And so these are like um, trout. These aren't, these aren't being stocked, right? These are, these would be wild reproducing trout then. Correct. Yeah. Especially in Pennsylvania, we're dealing a lot with brook trout, native brookies, um, which is cool because being in New York, we don't have a lot of native brook trout. Um, but yeah, we occasionally run into stock fish if there's like a tributary for a stock stream, um, but they're usually pretty easy to identify and we kind of um, don't include, we include them in the survey, but they don't count towards the wild trout classification for that stream, obviously. Okay. So there's not any like... Um naturally reproducing browns or rainbows i mean we do we have there's very few i think one or two that we surveyed in pennsylvania has naturally reproducing rainbows um quite a few have naturally reproducing browns um but brook trout are always i mean that's our native fish on the east coast um you know browns and rainbows kind of being invasive species in a way yeah Um, it's that's a weird thing right like we, we see these as i mean they've been on the landscape for so long um we don't generally view them as invasive species, mm-hmm. um, but they are a problem where they do start to get into um, traditional brook trout waters. We have the same issue here in Minnesota. We don't have, um, I mean, we, I guess we have a fair amount of trout streams. The southeast part of the state has trout streams, and then the north shore along Lake Superior obviously has some trout streams, and then there's a few scattered here, there, and everywhere. Um and then Wisconsin, which we're, I'm really close to Wisconsin. The, the western side of Wisconsin seems to have actually more trout streams than we do. But those, they don't seem to compete well with the, the rainbows and the browns. Um, and probably the browns more so. They're pretty aggressive. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one of the things that we worked on actually was like gill lice, which is like a disease. Uh, for the, and only affects the brook trout. Hmm. Um and a lot, of, a lot of that stuff's kind of going underneath the radar because of how aggressive the brown trout are, where you actually see these streams where the gill lice wiped out entire populations of brown trout, but now they're class A, I, I mean, sorry, they wiped out entire populations of brook trout, and now they're incredibly high-density brown trout streams. So, I mean, the public doesn't really see what happened there because you have now this amazing brown trout stream, but now you have a stream that was originally named brook trout, it's just devoid of them. Is are the brown trout spreading those gill lice? You know, there's really not a lot of stuff on that. So 
on the West Coast, and I dealt with this when I worked in Colorado, they have gill lice and it only affects the rainbows. And then on the East Coast, we have gill lice and it only affects the brook trout. The browns, it doesn't seem to affect them at all. They don't ever have it on them. Um, I, we don't know if they can carry it or not, carry eggs, but they themselves cannot contract it. They seem to be much more hardier than the brook trout and the rainbows. Was the gill lice an issue before brown trout were introduced? I guess would be a question. Um, you know, I don't have the answer to that. Um, the way it got spread into Pennsylvania is there's a private hatchery that brought in fish from out of state that had gill lice. Um, and that's how it got into our Pennsylvania streams. Okay. So I only, I only really know the origin of that. I don't know how it got here in the first place. Seems to make sense. That's, you know, it seems to be a repeatable pattern um, just in the outdoors in general. You want to talk about CWD and deer where it's, you mm -hmm. know, comes from some sort of domestic strain, you know. So you got a hatchery trout. They're confined in large numbers, and then they're released. Like, that just seems to be, in general, a really poor practice. And then when that is loosed into the, the natural wilds, it it seems to often result in, in bad news. Is mm -hmm. Do you know, uh, what is Pennsylvania or anywhere along the Appalachians there, or what are they doing to combat that, if anything? So what we were doing was just trying to identify where it was, and – we ended up identifying two or three new streams the summer that I worked there that had gill ice. And it's pretty much just an identify and monitor thing. Um, we don't really have um, a way to treat it at this point. Um, but one of the things we were doing actively to try to prevent spreading it further, you know, being biologists that are working in multiple different streams per day, we would always carry an actual set of gear with us. Um, and so when we did, if we did find a stream that tested positive for gill ice, we would have to completely change our gear out. Um, that way we didn't transmit it to a different stream. And then that gear has to be frozen for like 72 hours before oh, wow. it can be used again. Yeah. So you had to freeze your waders. Waders and boots, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Um, oh, crap. What was I just going to, something else popped into my head and then I lost it. Um something about having to swap out your gear well maybe it'll come back to me um is there anything are they trying to restore native brook trout waters are there any programs over there like that where they're they're actively trying to eliminate the brown trout and and restore native brook trout waters or anything like that going on uh, not that I'm aware of, no. Okay. I, I don't think there's any, it's at least not with the Fish and Boat Commission, which I work for. I don't know what Trial Limited is doing in regards to that, but no, not that I know of. Okay. I know there's another issue further east, um, and another gentleman I'm, I'm working to get on the show just happens to coincide that kind of both from the east coast, but uh, he's in Maine, and they're working on their, they got the, I think they call them salties, but they're working on the, um, like the sea run brook trout. And there's a huge problem there and with Atlantic salmon, too. Like, there's a whole issue there. You know, they're stocking with the stocking fish. And I can't get too much into that because I don't know it. And I can't wait to talk to this guy. I've done a little bit of research on it. But that's, like, his main thing that he's focused on. Um, so, yeah, I guess I, I didn't know where they were at on that. But it sounds like it's been a while since you've been active in that part of the country working on stuff anyways. What did you do any guiding in Pennsylvania or what facilitated then your move to go west? 
and chase trout um, out there. So I actually, I actually moved west for another fisheries job um, that actually had guiding a part of it. I worked on a private ranch um, where I did uh, mostly biologist work, but once the owners of the ranch came, then I was a full-time fishing guide which ended up turning into being my whole summer because of COVID. It was an extended stay. So <laughs> it was a, it was a long time I spent guiding this year. That ain't the worst. That ain't the worst fate. No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Absolutely. And is that, what was, what was the uh, target out there? Browns, rainbows? Gold? Uh, most, mostly rainbows is we had some wild, we have wild browns in the river, but we mostly managed the rainbows with some genetics and stuff like that. Okay, so these are hatchery? You're doing uh, their own hatchery work then? They are, yeah. They're in the process of building their own hatchery. We, okay. bring in, we, we brought in fish from out of state, but we would we were very selective with our fish and stuff like sure. that. Sure. Yeah, you don't want the gill lice. <laughs> yeah, well, I, we have the gill lice. Oh, really? I like a lot of it, yeah. But, oh, wow. um, but the fish were a little bit, they're genetically modified, so they're, um, they grow bigger. They fight harder. Oh my God! Um, we got Frankenstein fish rolling around yeah, out in the mountains yeah. now. That's got to yeah. be a little uh, controversial. It's a little controversial. The public, the public doesn't really seem to mind all that much um, because they have access to the river. Um, not wading access, but they can float through it and catch some of these giants. There's twenty plus pound rainbows in that stream. Ooh. Yeah, so it's pretty, pretty fun, pretty impressive to fish for them. Um, but yeah, are they putting in uh, any of those golden trout that I hear about, yeah. or lightning yeah. trout? I think they call them, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, we we spent uh, unri- uh, ridiculous amounts of money <laughs> to put those fish in. Uh, <laughs> can't go into specifics, but yes, we have those. I, in there. Uh, you know, I have to. I mean, they're kind of cool, but um, my personal opinion. I don't know, dude. I feel like you're catching a koi. Like they don't like. Yeah. I want my rainbow trout to look like rainbow trout. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, I mean, I had I had been on the ranch for a little while, and I had, I had done my I caught my fair share of those giant fish, and I mean, they're not super hard to catch. In all honesty, they're really aggressive. So when they did put those yellow ones in there, and I caught a couple like that were this big instead of those twenty five pounders, I was pretty pumped. It yeah, was pretty fun. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's something different, you know. I mean, you don't have a ton of of uh, variability within rainbow trout you know one rainbow trout looks a lot like the next one i guess so mm-hmm. throw a couple oddballs in there and looks pretty cool mm-hmm. uh i wouldn't mind catching a tiger trout which that's like that's what is that's brook trout and browns cross brook, i think brown cross, yep. those look those things look pretty cool mm-hmm. and they're definitely not naturally occurring <laughs> i just don't like um, it's it's weird to me with that they're you know depending on where you're at you know you've got a river there you're dumping in genetically modified trout, these special, you know, these color phases, whatever. And then in other parts of the country, they're working really hard to get rid of rainbows, get rid of browns. And they're trying to get back to, you know, just uh, pristine, you know, golden trout waters or, you know, protecting bull trout where they're native and then yeah. and then trying to get bull trout out of where they're not native you know like it's just there's there's a yeah. lot of moving pieces going on out there and it's it's pretty interesting there's a lot of money involved in the industry and like colorado is a state where they invest a lot in their tourism and fishing is a huge tourism attraction so they are not so much about taking fish away they're more about putting them in and yeah colorado getting- seems to have i mean 
I feel like we're not that far from them like releasing tigers in the wild so that people will come there and hunt them because like they they were yeah. on the ballot this year they had on there to vote to bring in wolves and I know that's wolves. a highly contested. Um, and there's already wolves there. There's already a pack of wolves. Yeah, there. and that's what I've heard too. I mean, yeah. it's highly contested, and, and it's you know, it's like, do you bring them in? Do you let them come in naturally? I mean, I think the controversy comes in that they want to bring them in so that they basically have a resource in which they can bring in hunters to hunt them, which exactly. doesn't sit well with wolf lovers. No, um, and, it, and I don't blame them. I mean, even from a conservation thing, you know, state of mind of being a biologist, you know, putting fish into a river that has wild brown trout is a, is a little bit to me where, you know, at what point are we doing too much? and messing with nature too much. But. Yeah. It's a, it's a balancing act, right? I mean, it, shoot, yeah. there's, there's brown trout all over the world. You go down to Argentina to catch brown trout. You can go to, I mm-hmm. think New Zealand probably has them, you know, it's just, it's, it's weird. You know, like, I guess if there was a, a water and it's from my understanding, and I could be totally wrong that these waters in like, and I don't even, you might not even know this, but like down in Argentina, in New Zealand, it wasn't really a big deal because they weren't displacing any, there wasn't any sort of fish filling that ecological niche. So it's like, Mm -hmm. well, it's not going to hurt anything. You know, they're going to go in there and they're going to eat bugs and, and whatever. They're not, they're not replacing something. And I could be wrong, but as far as I know that that's kind of the case, but in America, that's, that wasn't really the case because we had those native brook trout and, Mm -hmm. you know, we had golden trout and, uh, you know, the, your rainbows were, sea run you know they're steelhead for the most part and i guess maybe i'm wrong there is there any inner continental like native rainbow trout streams or were they all sea run at one point um so i believe california so the way i understand it west of the rockies is native rainbow trout territory east of the appalachian plus up in the great lakes region is native brook trout region and then in between there, I believe, is just cutthroat between the two mountain ranges. Okay, cuts and goldens. That's right. That's how I was forgetting cutthroats. Yeah, that's right. And bull so, trout and, were they? Are they introduced too? I thought they were native. Bull trout are native. I just don't know their range. I couldn't. Okay. Tell you. Yeah, yeah, I, I think know they, those. Those are in Montana and like the Missouri River and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think they're like a a mountain species if I'm not mistaken. I probably am though. I shouldn't talk about it. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Which has never stopped me before. But you know, <laughs> you can't you know, can't let facts get in the way of some good bro science. Um and so currently right now, um you're kind of focused on looking for uh another fisheries job or are you putting more focus on guiding or both? Um, I think right now my plan is to just go into guiding. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to pursue that for a few years to see how I like it. Um, I really enjoyed it when I did it in Colorado. Um, I would have liked a little bit different circumstances for who I was <laughs> guiding for sure. and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed being on the water with people and teaching people the sport. Um, you know, I've been very blessed to do a lot of stuff in this sport. You know, I'm, I've been doing this for half my life now. I started when I was 11 years old. Um, and Jody Malderis, uh, which is a guy out of the Catskills, um, I interviewed him once for my old podcast. 
Uh, and he said, you kind of have to be over your pile of fish. Like that's when you kind of know that you're maybe you're ready for the guide type thing, um, which I don't know if I'm there yet, but <laughs> I, to me, like, like I still get excited when I catch a fish, but the same, like I'm, I'm not at that point anymore more where it's like, I need to take a picture of every fish because you know, it's a brown trout and it looks just like the one I just caught. Right. Um, and, I, and don't get me wrong. I still appreciate each fish individually for what it is. Um, but I, I just enjoy sharing it with people, with people and bringing new people into the sport. Um, it's been very rewarding. And I've actually learned a lot from it myself, just helping other people. So well, you, different, you, different you, aspect. you look young. How old are you? If you don't mind me asking, I'm 22, 22. So, okay. Oh, yeah. you got your whole, you're a puppy. You got your whole life ahead of you. Exactly, um, yeah. Uh, but that's cool. You've been, you've been fly fishing since you were 11. Fly fishing size eleven. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I love fly fishing. I don't. I don't do it much anymore. Um, there's just not enough days and hours, you know. To mm -hmm. uh, I have so many irons in the fire. It's it's obscene. But um, I do love it. I I just need. I would like to get back into it. But I get what you're saying. Like, and you're pretty young. Like you're, you're like you're not quite done catching some fish yourself. But you're mm -hmm. you do understand. Um the joy you get when you like you teach somebody and then you see them apply that and they catch a fish like that's where I'm at. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. I still have some bucket list, fi bucket list fish, you know, don't get me wrong. It just, even in my own state. Um, but as far as like the stuff that I guide for, um, yeah, I tournament fish, you know, for bass. Um, but I don't, I don't get, if I'm just like lately I find out if I, if I don't have a client, I don't have a tournament that I'm pre-fishing for and all my buddies are busy. I have a hard time finding the motivation to hook up the boat and go fishing. When it's just me, it's like, ah, I've caught bass. I mean, I've caught fish like, ah, whatever. You know, if I go, mm -hmm. I go, if I don't, I don't, you know, obviously the, the motivation is to stay on the bite. So when you, you know, client does call, you have the confidence to put them on fish. Um, but I, I, it's almost like I need something bigger to really motivate me now in that in that fishing world outside of just myself now if i had planned a trip somewhere to go catch something i haven't caught yet and it doesn't necessarily have to be anything crazy uh literally anything of any size is on is on my list of things to catch so like uh well i've caught cutthroats i have not caught like uh the golden trout which i think they're pretty i think they're like endangered mm -hmm. fairly, fairly mm -hmm. certain um, yeah. but figure out where those are, you know, and go and go try to catch those would be, would be awesome. I've never caught a bull trout. Bull trout is definitely on, on the list. Um, so there's, you know, all Arctic char. I'd love to catch Arctic char. I yeah. guess there's a couple places you can get those in the lower 48 up in the mountains. Yeah. You can catch Arctic char out of, uh, I know this out of Dillon Reservoir in Colorado. Oh, even in Colorado. Okay, because I know there's, there's – I think there's some in Montana, some in Idaho that um, that I found. Um, I haven't had the time to go try to chase them down, but that would be pretty cool. I mean, mm -hmm. those are awesome. There's a lot of those. Like um, Arctic char are high on my list because those things, especially when they're breeding, holy cow, those things are like – the paint job on those things is unreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, was that Iceland, Iceland or Greenland? Is that where they get them? Yeah, I think we had. I think they're in Canada and Alaska too, if I'm not mistaken. I'm I'm pretty sure. Uh, I think anywhere up like near the Arctic Circle has them. 
Um, but they're just, man, those things are unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, but aren't, I believe brook trout are part of the char family, are they not? They are, yes. Yeah, they're, they're a char. Yeah, so they're not really a trout. They're a char, which I don't mm-hmm. know. what. So what's the biological difference there? So obviously they're close enough that they can hybridize because the tiger trout, which we mentioned, is a brown trout, brook trout hybrid. Mm-hmm. And then you got, uh, what's the lake trout, brook trout? Splake. But those are, Splake. but lake trout, lake trout is a char too, is it not? I think. I would assume, I would assume so, yes. I yeah, assume it's I'm a char. pretty sure. Do you, do you know what the difference is, the definition difference of a char and a trout? I should look that up real quick. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Awesome biologist you are. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I can give you the scientific name of a brick trout. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. What is, um, what, do you have bucket list fish? I do. Um, bull trout is definitely up there. I would love to spend some time in BC doing some bull trout fishing. Um, Arctic grayling. Um, but I would really want to do that in like Alaska. Uh, I know they do have some streams here in Montana that have grayling, but I would really like to do that up there in Alaska. Um, probably golden Dorado. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That'd be pretty sweet. (laughs) Yeah. Those things are wicked. Yeah. And a lot of destination stuff. Like I'd love to go to New Zealand, Argentina, stuff like that. I don't know. I, I find it. I mean, the scenery would be cool to go to like Argentina. Um, I find it weird to travel halfway across the world to catch a fish I can catch right here. It's the same way. Like I'm a, I'm a waterfaller. I don't know if you hunt or not, but like you can go to New Zealand and shoot Canada geese and mallard ducks. Like, that seems really weird to me, that I'm literally going to fly all the way around the world to go shoot something I can shoot right here in my backyard. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. If I'm go- if I'm traveling to a far and away land, I want to shoot something, fish for something that I can't get right here. Like, that, to yeah. me, that's kind of like the point of traveling. Yeah. Well, I think with the brown trout in New Zealand, like, you have brown trout that are disproportionately big. Um, like, they're a lot bigger than our fish on average plus they don't have birds that prey in new zealand so these big like huge browns just sit in inches of water and you can sight fish for them while you're staring at a 20 pound brown trout that's really well i mean we got there, there's giant ones to be had like in the great lakes oh for sure and I've, I've caught some of those but i mean a lot of those are stocked too yeah they're fisheries fish i guess i don't well i think some of the browns naturally reproduce in the great lakes i'm I, I think maybe not. I guess I guess I just I'm sure assume. there's a degree of it, yeah. I but like we catch them in New York and they're I mean they're basically a salmon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I know like in uh, Michigan has uh, a large population of large browns. Um again, bucket list thing, something I say I'm going to do every year and every year I don't do it, but is to go to Michigan and ice fish for giant giant brown trout. I think that would just be dude I can't even imagine pulling up a 20-pound brown trout through a hole in the ice. That would just be ridiculous. <laughs> have you ever gotten any big muskies through the ice? I've never caught one through the ice. I have caught some muskies open water, um, but never never through the ice. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, I've seen some I've seen some monsters caught through. I, I don't ice fish, but I've seen some monsters caught through the ice. Yeah, it would be they – don't, they don't bite that much through the ice. I, I'm not sure why. Um whether they just kind of go more dormant in the winter or 
maybe people just aren't ice fishing with big enough baits. I'm not quite sure what the thing is. Nobody really targets them. And we have a lot of mm-hmm. musky lakes here in Minnesota, but I don't know of anybody that targets muskies through the ice. They, they catch them usually accidentally if they're tip-up fishing for pike or even walleye fishing sometimes. Somebody will just accidentally hook one and bring it up. But as far as I know, nobody targets them. But it would be pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, t- tiger, yeah. so speaking of hybrids, like tiger muskies, um, they're on my, I've never caught one. They're on my bucket list. we got a handful of lakes here in, in Minnesota that have them, but never got into that. Have you ever fly fished for muskies or have you ever fished for muskies at all? I have, I have fly fished for muskies and actually one of my first outings I had got a take on one of my very, but I was not ready for That's it That's impressive. All. And I, I try, it was just pure, like it was nothing that I did. <laughs> it was just pure chance and I had three big strips and it just blew up on it. And like I trout set on it so hard, I was just not ready for that. <laughs> it was just unlike anything I've ever experienced. Where was uh, it? That was in a stream, and I did it in the lake. Uh, and I was figure eighting my fly, and I had just a musky just pop up like an alligator. I felt it nose the tail of my fly, and then went straight back down. But that's a heart race fish. Those are small oh, for sure. Hey, you know that's. It's one of the good things, like if you guide for muskies, is that you don't necessarily have to catch them for it to be a successful day. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you lay eyes on them, that's a successful day because you don't obviously to to hook one and to hold one and to get the pictures. That's the ultimate goal, obviously. But as someone who has fished for muskies, when you just get that giant that follow and it's a giant and you're you're doing whatever, and all of a sudden you look down and here's this just enormous fish boat side your heart stops you stop breathing then the adrenaline kicks in and you're sh- i mean it is an experience that you just i mean even if you don't catch that fish you got that rush and and clients will usually leave pretty pretty dang happy just to get that rush um but it, obviously catching them is hooking up and just feeling all that power i mean it, it's not like you're in for an hour fight or anything it, the fight's usually pretty quick but it's mega violent and it's like everything you can handle for five minutes you know it's it's pretty fun i was asking that because um you know before i start recording you do some competitive fly fishing mm-hmm. where where does that take place um so most of that is done in the northeast primarily new york mostly pennsylvania um kind of like penn state area there's a pretty big following there um, there's also the Southeastern Fly Fishing League, which is like your Carolinas, your Georgia. They have a pretty big league down there too, but ours is mostly just Northeast Pennsylvania and those kind of streams. So obviously you have to travel over there to do that. You were saying they didn't really do anything this year because of COVID, which makes sense. A lot of a lot of tournaments um, got canceled. We have a big giant ice fishing contest up here that that got canceled just recently. Um, so yeah, it's just it happens. Yeah, like national. I was in Colorado, and nationals was supposed to be held there. Uh, so I was going to go watch just because what well, a learning opportunity to see those guys that are going to be in the world teams like that. But that got canceled shortly after. For sure. Um, there's a. I'm connecting it with the muskies because I know of a. Every spring there's a. Um, a muskie fly fishing tournament. I think it's in Tennessee, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Anyways. Yeah. Um, 
I've had a couple. I've had invites before, and I'm like, I, I mean, I haven't picked up my fly rod in years, and I've never fly fished for muskies. I'm not sure I'm the partner you want. <laughs> I, um, I've fished with one of the guys that won that before. Um, he's out of Buffalo too. Uh, his, his buddy ties his flies. It's called Nightmare Muskie Flies. Oh, no, no, Nightmare Muskie Flies is the sweater that I'm wearing. His, <laughs> his company is called Streamer King Flies. There's two really nice musky tires out there in Pennsylvania, but he ties streamer king flies. He tied the fly that won that, uh, and I actually fished with the angler, not for musky, but we fished for trout and stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, he, actually, he won that competition down there one year. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty wicked. Mm-hmm. Then that would be – that's a different beast. I mean, they're, they're fishing rivers. They're, it's muskies. Like, there's a, whole, there's a whole lot going on there. Um, mm-hmm. That would be fun. And I, I – I would have done it. I just it wouldn't have fit into my schedule, um, and I was gonna do it just for the experience, like with no mm-hmm. aspirations of being competitive in it whatsoever. But talk about a whole like interesting adventure or experience to be a mm-hmm. part of. Like that is a different thing. I mean, not only competitive fishing, but competitive musky fishing and competitive musky fly fishing <laughs> like let's yeah. just make well, it as extremely as hard as possible yeah well the, the best thing about it like had you just gone down there for that that tournament how much you would have learned in just that one weekend for sure like that's my first year i think i've been competing four years now but just that first year competing how much i learned is it's incredible and that if you do want to learn i mean maybe you're not in it for the competitive aspect but just showing up to like a competition and competing just to learn and become a better fisherman, you'll learn so much. That transfers to any type of fishing too. I mean, we yeah. have, um, when I joined, I, I joined a bass club here, you know, a few years ago and started first tournaments I ever fished. Um, you learn so much. I mean, you just, you get exposed to other people's styles and, and really what works. And I mean, it's that tournament thing where they really hone down the skill you know same thing that happens we and i'm in a competitive ice fishing league minnesota made outdoors we just had our first event in which i was not very competitive <laughs> um had my worst finish to date uh had a rough couple days last week uh i'm mostly over it <sighs> i have my moments <laughs> uh yeah it was a bad beat but um we have a lot of I shouldn't say a lot, but we have a few young teams that have joined this year and uh, completely new to competitive ice fishing. And it's going to be a lot of fun to watch their progress. And, you know, they came into it with the understanding of, like, they didn't, you know, they had no aspirations, unrealistic aspirations of winning the whole, you know, becoming team of the year or anything like that. Um, But they came into it with an open mind. And uh, one of the teams is a is a, a woman team, which I think is great. Like I've been saying for like a long time, it's like why aren't there more women anglers on the professional level? I mean, there's there's really no benefit. You know, I, I'm I, I don't want to come off as sounding like one of these ultra left, mm-hmm. you know, like liberal women can do anything men can do. Listen, if, if women in in an arm wrestling competition, they're going to get destroyed. Like they're they're physically different. Yeah, you yeah. know. So I'm not I'm not. I don't have any delusions <laughs> that there aren't big differences between male and female, but in the arena of fishing, 
I don't really understand where a male would have any benefit. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I just, I don't see it. You know, I, so don't, I don't see it. The only thing I could see is in fly fishing is when it comes to waiting. I'd say there's an advantage for a man waiting versus a woman. Just based on I can see height, head structure, head can, structure, height, stuff like that. I can but see like, height for out sure. Of a, out of a boat, bass fishing, absolutely not. That yeah. should be a level playing field. Yeah, I could see that, especially height ways. I mean, if you're taller, you can go into deeper water. I mean, plain and simple, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. um, as long as this current isn't too <laughs> isn't too strong. I'm I'm six four, so I can wade in some pretty deep water. Um, but I've been in you know some pretty strong currents, the Mississippian spots. You don't want to wade that. <laughs> Better stick to shoreline, pretty relatively shallow. I, I picked the spot to cross one time um, just to say that I crossed it. And not where most people say they crossed the Mississippi. Like most people go up to like Lake Itasca where it's where the Mississippi starts in air quotes mm-hmm. because that even that is debatable. Um, and it's just a little babbling brook that spills out of a lake right so you literally get ankle deep and you walk across the mississippi it's like no 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 i was way further downstream where i crossed the mississippi (laughs) and i got up to about uh, not quite chest but like mid drift and it's not that the current was like super fast there but the volume of water that is Mm -hmm. moving was you felt it it's like as soon as i crossed that like near shore current stream it was a totally different thing i was like oh this might not have been a good idea <laughs> but i side i sidestepped it um i relied on all my skills of waiting i, I kind of grew up waiting small rivers so you know the the basics are all still the same feeling out rocks with your feet before making big steps small moves all that and i made it across so um and then I had to get back over because that was the yeah, side of the, that was the side of the river I was parked on. So I was like, "Shit, I got to do this again now." Um, so obviously, I'm here to tell a tale. <laughs> I didn't die, but uh, probably shouldn't have done that. That's, I mm-hmm. don't recommend people do that. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> have you ever? Um, I, this this is how my schizophrenic brain works. But um, when I was the day I did that was also the day I had caught a, a carp on a topwater lure. They happened to be up eating um, cottonwood seeds. And so I had a popper, and because I was up there bass fishing, I had a popper, had a white feather on the tail. I'm like, well, this kind of looks like a cotton. You know, let's see if I can get one to hit. But I would cast, and they would scatter. If I popped it, they would scatter. Even if I, like, reeled it, if it moved, they would scatter. They were, like, super sketchy. So I thought, well, if I just get the the right drift, so now the fly fishing skills kind of kicked in. It's mm-hmm. like I don't touch it. If I just get the right drift and it and it goes through them, one might come up and try it. And sure enough, I, I got the right drift. I never touched the the plug. It came up. It it sucked in that white feather. Fight was on. And man, those things fight good. Have you ever have you ever fly fished for carp? Uh, I did very briefly when I was in Montana when I was sixteen we were throwing top water for carp um we didn't do very well so we started throwing things for smallmouth. okay but yeah but yeah using like i know my buddy like i do a lot of euro nymphing that's like the competitive style fly fishing for trout like applying those techniques to your spin like you can do that with spinning gear and mm-hmm. do it really effective so like you don't have to just 
use your traditional spinning gear methods. Like you can use fly fishing methods up with your spinning gear and it works incredible and vice versa. I've used spinning gear methods with, um, flies. I mean, it's a little different, right? Like, especially like modern day streamer fishing is based on like crank, what the guys are doing with crankbaits. We're trying to make our flies look as much like crankbaits as possible. Sure. That makes sense. I think I've seen a few flies even that will have a little plastic thing right in front of us. It gives them a little, gives them a little wobble. At what point do flies stop becoming flies and they start Um, becoming lures? I mean, like traditional conventional tackle lures. I mean, yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like a lot of the stuff they're doing to mimic like crankbaits and stuff has like a deer hair head, like a big wedge on it. I mean, so you're still making it out of like feathers and stuff. I mean, I do fish some streamers like a sculpt, like a headbanger sculpin where the head is just, it's made out of metal. Um, so you're, you're crossing the line there a little bit. With lures, <laughs> but I, I'm no, I like to catch fish. Like I'm not a purist, like, um, where the line's drawn, I don't know. I think as soon as you maybe you put a hard bait on there and it has its own swivel and you're not m- using like yeah. wire to connect them, maybe that's where you get a little. Um, but I do just like to catch fish. So and and can we be honest? A strike indicator is a bobber. Oh, dude, that's I mean, exactly you guys what, are only uh, like the hardcore fly guys. You're only yeah. lying to yourself. Nobody else is yeah. buying this. <laughs> and me and, me and my buddies we call them babbers we don't babbers. even call them bobbers we just put that A in there and, and it's so funny because people do get upset about it. they do that. get upset about it they're like it's a strike it's, indicator it's a bobber it's a bobber, it's a bobber yeah. yeah so I mean yeah it's a bobber it's whatever it catches fish <laughs> like, it's no, nothing to get all upset about I'll tell you what trying to detect a bite when you're drifting just a nymph without one is super tough unless you're in shallow clear enough water where you see the take but it's pretty difficult well that's a lot like what your own thing is we don't use bobbers we use strike indicators but which is just a colored piece of line built into our leader okay so we we rely on that moving with heavy flies so it's like you're essentially fishing like an anchor and when that cider moves that's when you feel the strikes we because we're not allowed to use uh, bobbers competitively. They're against the rules. Even babbers? Babbers are Bab- against no, the rules? No Everything has to have a point on it. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know that there people use droppers. You'll have like a, a, a dry fly or something made of foam or something that will float, has a hook in it, but then you have a dropper, yeah. a nymph dropper on it. Yeah. When we have to do that, that's what we do. But the, the European-style nymphing without it is – is our go-to when we can use it, but there is time and place. There's a time and place for everything. Sure. But and then, um, I mean, then you got your purists, right? Then you got your dry fly only yeah. guys. Like that's a whole nother level of individual right there. They they can have it because, like I said, I like to catch fish. <laughs> you're not there yet. You're only twenty. You're not there yet. You'll probably get there I've, at some point in time. I've heard some crazy stories, like people like cutting the cutting the bends off the hook like they're just in it for the rise like and they're not even but but they'll actually actually catch the fish sometimes because the fish took it that hard just won't let go of it it didn't didn't have a hook point but it's still dug in wow like fish feet on the bottom 90 percent of the time that's where i'm gonna be (laughs) i hadn't heard that that is insanity just in it for the rise but sometimes that rise is such it's such a subtle take 
Mm-hmm. Like it's one thing if they you know it's like whoomp, they take it, but if when they're doing that sipping thing like that, like mm-hmm. what's fun about that unless you get to set that hook? Like I don't. Yeah. I mean, some it's because I I fish dries mostly as like an indicator. They're just a natural indicator that I can also catch a fish on. And yeah, sometimes it just looks like your fly got wet and it's sunk, <laughs> but there's a fish on. So like, how do you even know? And then you know what that is? That that that's a that's a hobby for people that just like tying, like tying yeah. knots. I don't mean tying the flies. I mean like tying yeah. like retying and changing lures. That that's that's what that hobby is. Because if you're a dry fly purist and the trout aren't taking dry flies like you, you don't go to the stream and you don't see them actively sipping something like you're just going through every single thing in your box and seeing if you can find something that will elicit a strike so you, mm-hmm. how often do you tie and one thing i super i love fly fishing like i said i don't get to do it much but when i when i did do it the thing i i found really irritating was you know you, you cut a big you know you tie on a big thing of tapered leader and as you're trying to figure out what they're biting on, that tapered leader gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And, shorter. and then you got to cut it and tie a whole new tapered leader. Like, that is a pain in the butt, dude. Like, that was that used to ir- – like, you get a tough day where you could not figure out what they're hitting. That started to irritate me. Like, this isn't – that like, this is no longer fun. Like, <laughs> this is like a job now. I, I use a lot of tippet rings just for like, I, I, I hate tying line together. Like those knots are necessary. <laughs> if I put a tippet ring on there, clinch knot it and I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. I mm-hmm. never really thought about that, but like I said, I, it's been, I don't know the last time I picked up fly rod. Like I honestly don't. Um, but there is something to that fly fishing that it, that is a lot of fun. I really should pick up a couple new, new setups because, uh, I've, been having a few people showing interest that they want to learn how to fly fish uh, i wouldn't take them to a trout stream personally i'd just get them mm-hmm. up on the flat deck of my bass boat and we would just catch bluegills all day long yeah uh, great way to learn you know mm-hmm. and you you can make a crappy cast and still catch a bluegill um and that that just keeps you doing it you know that gives you the motivation mm-hmm. to keep going but it, you know i think anybody that teaches fly fishing just the mechanics of it I think most people agree, like, the best place to learn how to fly fish is in your backyard. Don't tie on a hook, nothing. Because the concept, especially if people had experience fishing before um, that you try to get across and you have to, like, retrain their brain, is you're not casting the lure. You're placing the line out there, and there happens mm-hmm. to be a hook on the end of it because the, the, the lure itself is, like, incredibly light. And you're using a yeah. weight, you know, weighted weight forward line or whatever, and it that that's a weird concept for a lot of people to understand. Yeah, and I I also think that casting is overrated. I think there's too much emphasis. Like, and don't get me wrong, I learned in my front yard casting that way, um, but guiding just people new to the sport, like you don't really need to know how to cast to catch fish. In all honesty. Um, so it really just needs to come down to what they want to learn. Like if they actually want to learn the sport and they want to learn the cast, because I've had people been like, Hey, like, like I want to actually learn, I want my cast to look kind of like your cast. And I'm like, okay, then we'll practice casting. Um, but if they're just out there to catch fish, like you can just flick it up there. Like, <laughs> especially the, like, and that's what I there's She like the one was a lady and she's like, you know, my cast isn't that pretty. And I'm like, well, you just caught a fish. I have no complaint. Like, you're not tangling every cast. 
like that's where it comes in. Like if you're tangling, then obviously you need some casting instruction. But if you're not tangling every cast, you can get out there and catch some fish. I don't care what your cast yeah. looks like. Let's catch fish. Stop watching wow. a river runs through it. You're not Brad Pitt. Exactly. <laughs> the whole the whole shadow. The, 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 I didn't even hit the water. I actually just watched that movie. Coincidentally yeah, enough, awesome. like three days ago. Um, took Well, I shouldn't watch in air quotes like I took a nap to it. Started it, woke mm. up at the end. <laughs> but it was on. I think I did, Actually, I think I did wake up in the shadow casting scene yeah. where he like ends up catching that giant brown, and then shortly after that he gets killed. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's a good movie to take a nap to. It really is. It's yeah. very peaceful. Yeah. It's um, four hours. Is it really that long? I think so. I think it's four was, hours. That was a solid nap then. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's just called going to sleep at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's I, the casting thing. I I am by no stretch like a great fly caster. I can get the job done, um, but like you're saying, you don't need to be Brad Pitt and a river runs through it to catch fish. I would think, if anything, the one technique to learn would be just the roll cast, which is super simple. When I yeah. was trying to learn it. I was reading about it and I thought it was like you make this like loop with your hand kind of thing to do a roll cast and I and I was fishing this really small stream in western Wisconsin and you know I was basically just flipping it out there like I said there wasn't there was too many too much brush behind me to do any sort of cast whatsoever and just struggling to get it down there and you know get a get a good drift and this guy's like we'll just do a roll cast i'm like i don't know i can't do a roll cast dude i don't even understand it and he's like what do you mean it's like the easiest thing ever mm-hmm. and he's like and then he just showed me it's like oh that is that is not what i thought it was you know basically like lift your line straight up let that slack come down and when you have that loop just drop it and that just flips out there like that little Kind of like back when you were the kids, like just with ropes. Or you see those big muscle-bound dudes yeah. and they're doing the rope thing. That's basically what a roll cast is. You're just getting that loop so then that mm-hmm. energy transfers all the way out there. And then you replace that fly. It's like once yeah. – and like I learned it in like 10 minutes. I was like, oh, jeez, that's like so simple. Yeah. That's not what I thought it was at all. <laughs> and then, and what, I mean, once you learn that, that's the foundation from every other cast in the entire mm-hmm. sport, just that roll cast. And then, yeah, and then I started uh, – yeah, he helped me out a lot. I mean, that day, it's like I I didn't really understand like nymph fishing, so and that's what they were eating. You know, I was trying to get them on these dry flies. It was winter time. You know, I'm using like the a size 22 midge. You know, and they mm-hmm. they weren't taking it. I mean, it's not what they're eating. And he's like, oh, let's put on this pheasant back or whatever the hell it was, bead head. And so I put that on there, and he's like, you just you got to watch the tip of your line. And we didn't use strike indicators. We didn't use babbers. It was mm-hmm. like you just got to watch your line. And then I would see it would slow. It wasn't even like a twitch or anything. It's like the drift would just slow down like it yep. for no reason. And then he's like, there's a bite right there. And then I would just, you know, lift the rod tip up and catch a giant eight-inch brook trout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was fun, dude. It, like that yeah. didn't matter to me. Like the size had nothing to do with size. Like you're not going to catch a giant brook trout there. You're just you're not going to. Um, mm-hmm. They're all little pretty much. Uh, what's the biggest brookie you've caught? Um, you know, probably only like 12 inches, 
Oh, okay. that I've caught with a fly rod. I mean, I've caught with electricity bigger than that. Well, <laughs> that's not, that's cheating. Yeah. <laughs> Has there been streams where you have fished before where you've caught, you know, those 12 inches or whatever, and then you go and you, you electrofish it and you're like, holy crap, these are in here. <laughs> um, I have experienced that sometimes I, I try to, a lot of the stuff I is unfishable that we kind of shock. They're like small streams where you're walking through thorns and bleeding when you mm-hmm. come out. So you can't really fly fish it. Um, and, and I try to make it a point, like part of the fun for the, the sport is like not knowing what's in the water. Um, so like whenever we would shock like a big fish, like I wouldn't really go back and fish for it. Um, just because I knew, I, I knew what it looked like. I knew it was already there, but you'd be surprised at the size of some of the fish that come out of some small streams. It's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, I learned that like, not from personally catching it, but I remember, um, many moons ago, like 20 plus, maybe 30 years ago, um, either seeing a video or a fishing show might've just been a magazine. The memory's hazy, but I remember somebody catching just an absolute like giant brown trout out of this Mm -hmm. tiny, tiny little stream. You could jump over it in like, um. In Montana, I think it was in Montana somewhere, but like going through the plains, like it was mm-hmm. in the lowlands, it wasn't up in the mountains. And this, I was like, what? How? Like this was like a thirty-inch brown. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This fish can't even turn around in that river. Like, how is this even possible? Yeah. Well, and the biggest browns that I've ever caught, in, uh, primarily with streamers and stuff, like twenty-three inches, twenty-two inches. I've caught out of spots that were only big enough for that fish. That's a nice I mean, they were big, they were nice bigger fish, streams, though. but I've never caught one of those big fish in a deep hole. Now, I haven't fished a lot of these western rivers yet, so I'm sure it's a little different here. But like back east, I would like I caught this 22 inch wild brown that literally was underneath this undercut that was only big enough to cover its body. Dude, so there's a I won't mention it here because it already gets enough pressure. Um, but there is a there's a stream pretty local to the twin cities metro area um that has natural reproducing browns in it they stock rainbows in it but it's like further up and it's a put and take fishery um Mm -hmm. and the browns are catch and release only because they are naturally reproducing now this is not a big river i will call it a stream and most people don't fly fish it they use conventional tackle on it and that's what i've done i've gone down there with spinning gear and you don't use your normal ultralight trout rod like you go there with your bass stuff because this river has giants in it and when they survey it with the electro stuff they pull out 30 plus inches every Mm -hmm. time and you're like what the hell you've got to be kidding me i've never caught one that big there i think i've caught i think i think my biggest out of it is like a 22 incher um which i think that's a i mean you know when you're used to catching you know yeah a good one in a heavily pressured trout stream, you know, a 14 inch trout is a, is a nice keeper, you know, and then getting over that 20 inch mark, that's a big fish. I mean, that like mm-hmm. you get pretty excited, but there was one day I was down there and there's this big, deep undercut and it was just black underneath it. I mean, it's just dark, deep undercut and I'm throwing like a, a big Rapala and I'm working it. And this, it was like musky fishing, like going back to what we talked about when you get that follow and you're, you stop breathing, your heart stops beating and the whole flush of adrenaline, like that happened. This trout came out from underneath that 
I can't even call it a trout when they're that big. I feel like, like I don't know what other word I'm going to use for it, but yeah. this giant leviathan came out yeah. and like nipped at my back hook, and then just went right back underneath that thing, and I just stood there, eyes as big as saucers, mouth agape. Like, I, if he would have actually hit it, I don't think I would have had the mental capacity to even set the hook. If he wouldn't have turned mm-hmm. and run and set the hook on itself, I would have lost that fish. Mm-hmm. This thing was an absolute beast. This was one of those 30 inchers that they find when they're electro fishing this stretch of stream. Unreal. So I just kept casting. I got that fish to move one more time. And that second time he just barely, he like slid out from that just enough for me to see him and slid right back in. He didn't even really chase the bait that second time. I was like, Oh my God. I let him, I let him for like a, let him be for a couple hours, hit him on the way back out. And he didn't, he didn't budge. But yeah. Oh, <laughs> And that's what I love about brown trout. Like brown trout are my favorite because I primarily only trout fish, but brown trout are my cup of tea because you get the daintiness of a trout. But when they get that big, they are predators. Dude. They they are musky with brown spots. <laughs> they can eat whatever they want at that. Yeah. I mean, their mouth is so big when they're mm-hmm. that size. It is, it is so big. They are not sipping mayflies. they're they're done with all that they're eating smaller trout probably Mm -hmm. they're eating frogs mice crayfish someone throws a big mac in there in the metro city area they're eating that they probably would they probably (laughs) would they can eat whatever the hell they want these things are absolute giants and like i had the thought of like how do you even fly fish one of these things you're not you're not going down there with your fly weight like you're going to need your like an eight weight at least Mm-hmm. you know yeah. to tangle this thing this thing is going to give you all you can handle if you hooked up to it like this is like catching a muskie this is this thing is yeah. huge yeah, well and, and like you like, like you said you're not even throwing like you're not throwing nymphs at that you're not throwing they're not going to eat those no you'd like, be you're, throwing you're, you're some, throwing you're throwing your big streamers that look like yep. that rap pillar, the truth. Yep, that's what some, you're doing. yeah some big you know five inch streamer of some sort yeah and then, I mean, how do they get? I've always wondered that too. It's like, and I've never used those big streamers. Um, but like in current like that, how do you get that down where that fish is living? Are the, do you got like lead wrapped around the hook when you tie it? Like, how are you waiting these things to get it down there? Yeah, yeah. A lot of them, like in those those situations, like a small stream. If you're not fishing a weighted fly, you're probably not going to catch a lot of fish. I know a lot of the bigger streams, like in Montana and even the bigger rivers in Pennsylvania, we use sinking lines just because you have more time to get it down. But yeah, big heavy, I put big heavy tungsten beads on them, uh, big sculpin heads. They're like 4.5 millimeters of tungsten, and you can drop that thing and like jig it like a bass lure. You know, I never thought about that tungsten, and I should have because tungsten is big in the bass world now. It's big in the ice fishing world now for panfish um, because you get that weight without a giant profile like you would with lead. Never really thought about that with flies. Like that's – that's uh, that would yeah. be – I hate to use the term game changer, but that would make a big difference. Not that it's a game changer, but it would definitely – you're losing the bulk of that lead. Yeah. So you're able to tie a much better fly. Every nymph in my box, other than my super unweighted stuff, has a tungsten bead on it. Hmm. Never even thought about that until just Mm -hmm. now. Interesting. I know. I kind of want to go fly fishing. We do have a winter season here in Minnesota. I should figure out that's probably kicking off here pretty soon if it hasn't already. It's catch and release only um, where where it's open. Um, 
that'd be a lot of fun though. Have you done mm-hmm. much fly fishing for bass? I, I've done a little, not so much. Uh, I did a lot of smallmouth last mm-hmm. summer, not last summer, the summer before, because I was on the Allegheny River. Um, so that's why I did most of my musky fishing and smallmouth fishing. Uh, but no, not a lot of lake stuff for largemouth that. But you, you... smallmouth or fly rod are pretty impressive. I caught some like seven inch smallmouth that I thought were like 15 inches. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to tangle with the 20 incher, come on out. Uh, we have a spot here in uh, Minnesota where the it's below a power plant where the river stays open and th- these things just stack up. I mean, the schools down there are ridiculous. I haven't fly fish for them. Actually, I'll just use conventional tackle and actually will use live bait at times, which I never do. Um, but that seems to be like the most effective method. Just drift a, a sucker minnow. And it's like, you just, the most simple rig, little hook, one tiny split shot. I mean, you're catching these things in three four feet of water and you don't even need to wade you can just fish right from shore you can wait if you want to um, but some guys will go down there with fly fishing gear and and they do quite well it's uh it's a lot of fun so if you get bored this winter yeah well come on we out did, i wanted to try doing it in lake erie because there is some guys that do that because we had a power plant out in dunkirk where they would do the same thing warm water would come in they'd stack up in the spring to spawn i just never got around to doing it oh but this yeah. isn't even spawning. Like, this is just, they congregate there. I mean, in general, um, smallies will form big schools in the winter, whether it's in a lake or a river. And they, they really they really pack in tight. And it just happens like you can, I mean, if there wasn't the power plant, they would still do it. They would just be under ice, and you wouldn't really have a way of effectively fishing for them. But because the power plant keeps that river from freezing, even in 20 below zero temperatures, um, you can go down there and, open water fish i mean it's fun like i like to go down mm-hmm. there you know get tired of using the short ice fishing rods in the middle of winter yeah. you know minnesota we had some pretty long winters here and it's mm-hmm. like it's nice to go down there break the long rods out do some casting catch some fish it's like it's yeah. a nice it's a nice change of pace and there is something very cool about just that whole experience of it's cold it's snowing or there's snow on the ground or whatever and i'm open water fishing there's steam coming out like it's mm-hmm. it's it's pretty damn amazing. Um, and I actually like, and I've talked about this on the show multiple times, but I love going down there when it's super cold. If I can go down there when it's like well below zero midweek, I have that spot to myself. So it's not a secret Mm -hmm. spot. Everybody knows about it. It's a little bit of a hike to get into really not that bad, but if you get a nice warm winter day, it's above freezing sun's shining it's going to be way too busy there for my, on a weekend. It's going to be way too busy for my, for my liking. If I go there on a random Tuesday and it's 20 below zero and everybody's just hunkered down in their house, I'm the moron that'll go out there. And, uh, it's just, it's a super cool. I mean, you need to warm your hand up. You just stick your hand in the water. I mean, it's way warmer than the air, (laughs) way warmer than the air. The problem is, is you, you, you pull out your wet hand and it instantly gets cold. Yeah. 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 yeah, That's it. It's not really a good way of warming up your hand. <laughs> it feels good at first, but you're like, yeah, this was a bad idea. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, yeah, likewise. Like, I love fishing in the winter just because, you know, fishing has become really popular and the winter time makes the crowds less. So that's the time to fish. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you had, um, so let's say like your bucket list fish, we already went through that. Like, you wanted a Dorado. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Like the gold yeah. Dorado, which for, 
for people that might not know, that's not the Dorado Mahi Mahi dolphin fish in the ocean. That's totally different. Um, those things are, those things are ridiculous. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the chompers on those things, like they got, you're not lipping those like a large mouth. No, they, got and they some, eat flies like the size of a muskrat. They got some <laughs> teeth on them. Yeah. I mean, I th- I would think fly fishing for like peacock bass would be pretty damn fun too. I mean, those things get some pretty explosive strikes. Yeah. Like big, I was going to strip a big popper. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, That's doable. That's luck. right here in this country. You don't have to you mm-hmm. just go down southeast for that. Florida, Georgia. They got snake kids all over down there. Well, actually, they have peacock bass too now. Even just Maryland, they have snakehead in Maryland, and I actually just found some in Pennsylvania, which is not good. But they have some oh in Maryland. wow, they've gone all the way up to Pennsylvania now, huh? Yep, yep. That's crazy. How are they just traveling via the river system? Is that how they're expanding, or are, are people dumb enough to actually drop them in there on purpose? You know. I think it's the latter, to be honest, and especially because it has gotten popular. Like I've seen a lot on social media, like people post and snakehead stuff and they're like, hashtag catch and release. And they're like, well, these fish aren't invasive anymore because there's so many of them, which I get, but like, had I no, still they're, they're, they're still invasive. Like there, there's I, no way yeah. of, there's, I mean, it's a weird thing, right? Like we talked about that earlier. Like they've been, you know, carp at one point in time were invasive. But now they've they're now they're considered naturalized because they've been here for you know over a hundred years. They've the the environment they've adapted to the environment. The environment has adapted to them. Um, but you can't not call a snakehead and it's it's not invasive. Like come on, dude. <laughs> those yeah. things those things are brand new on the scene. You know, yeah. relatively like what twenty years maybe max. Yeah. They've been they've been in the waters like. And they just take over a system. Oh, they're so voracious or voracious. I think the word would mm-hmm. be. Uh, they just eat everything. Uh, yeah, they're a lot of fun, but I mean, come on. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we were gonna go do it, and I said, "Yeah, I'll catch them," but like, I just the biologist in me and the conservationist in me, like, I was gonna have to kill everyone that I caught. Yeah, I, and and to me, it's like that's guilt free. You know, like yeah. if you if you don't even like to eat fish, I don't care. Fertilize your garden with it. Throw it in the wheat. Who cares? Because you're you're actually doing a service by not putting that fish back in the water. Um, not that you're really going to change much. If they're in it, yeah. they're in it. I mean, it would take some large scale, extremely expensive program. And I don't, and even that, I don't think you would be successful. I mean, once that 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 is well, that's just something you never put back. You know. That that one never gets put back in the box. Like once that thing is out, man, those those things are out. Which really, really uh, would like people to not do the bucket biology thing with species like that. You just do yeah. irreparable harm. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not like a diehard purist as far as like if there's some sort of accidental. Um, you know, obviously you try, you do your best to not. Mm-hmm. Um, infect new waters or land with some sort of invasive species but it does happen like the the analogy i use you know humans are weird whenever we find a chunk of land or water or whatever we assume it's supposed to be that forever in in perpetuity which isn't really how nature works right things expand things change landscapes change environments change climates change in the absence of humans like this has been going on for you know forever Um, With that said, we try to live responsibly within those confines and not have this, like, you know, careless 
effect on everything. The analogy I use is if there's an island, let's just say in the Pacific, right? Nothing, Nothing's on it. It just has some bugs, some birds, whatever has been on it since the beginning of time. Man lands there on a boat, steps off because the captain needs to drop a deuce or whatever. And in, in doing so, uh, a mouse that was stowed away on that boat lands on shore. Now you have this population of mice in this island where there never were mice. They eat the grains, they eat bugs, they do whatever. They, they change the ecosystem of that island for forever. That would be looked at as like a great sin by most people. Like we screwed that island up. However, let's say there was a giant hurricane and in this hurricane of all the trees that it uprooted and it created this giant raft and on this giant raft was a colony of iguanas. These iguanas made it to that island. They hop off that raft. They find this this island that is just loaded with fresh greens and bugs everywhere and they do the same thing and now they are on this island. That would be considered nature and I don't see the two things being that different. We would see, well, I guess that just happens sometimes. Yeah. You know, that wouldn't be a sin because nature yeah. did it. But we are a part of nature. I mean, we have the ability to take precautions, and I get that. And I'm not saying that we should just willy-nilly go from one place to the other. Um, but when something does happen and it becomes too big of an issue for us to control, at some point you have to go, well, I mean, life life yeah. finds a way, right? I mean, yeah. For sure. And that's actually really interesting because like in Lake Erie, we deal with the zebra mussels and the gobies mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But those, that stuff, those are invasive. Zebra mussels are invasive species. So are gobies. They came with the village of the ships or whatever when they came right. in. Yep. But, but those invasive species have dramatically changed the ecosystem. Like our smallmouth bass population in Lake Erie is incredible because of that stuff. Yeah, it's become a destination smallmouth yeah. fishery because of those two things. And uh, we've had the same thing happen here. Uh, one of our big marquee lakes, Mille Lacs Lake, known for its walleyes, but now known you know, for giant smallmouth bass too, is um, we've got zebra mussels. And it was already a clear lake, but it's become even clearer, which obviously mm -hmm. has changed how you fish. You know, the, the zooplankton, the phytoplankton and stuff that they're, that those mussels are filtering out has changed the ecology of that lake for sure for forever um there has seemed there was like a giant bloom of them and now it seems like they're actually kind of dying off and now we're starting to see some evidence that um some of our diver ducks are starting to pick up that they're a food source which they they you know they were a new species at first so they they weren't preyed upon um, by birds but now it seems like you know through stomach contents and stuff that the ducks are starting to figure out so they're it's starting to find that balance, right? Nature will always find a balance. Yeah. Even when you introduce something new as a snakehead, again, I'm not saying this is free license to just go drop snakeheads. You know, if we can avoid contamination, we should avoid contamination. But when it does happen and you can't control it, at some point in time, you can't just keep throwing money at it yeah. and wasting resources and time. What you have to, there becomes a time where you have to realize, okay, kind of like the common carp, where we just, you kind of got to throw your hands up and be like, well, we got them now. I mean, here they are. You know, we, we didn't do a good job of stopping them. They got in here. They're in here now. Now what do we do? Well, what do you do is you manage them like you would any other game species or whatever. You know, you set limits yeah. or set no limit or, you know, do what you can. But it just seems like you're never you're never putting that stuff. Once it's out of the box, it's 
really hard to yeah. hard to well, stuff back in there. But and 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 as a biologist, the thing you see a lot is we're constantly trying to bring things back. Like right. um, there's that there was a thing going around for a while, and even like putting the wolves in Colorado again, like there was a thing going around where they're going to try to bring back the woolly mammoth. And they're like, it's good for the natural grasses of the Everglades. <laughs> sure. Well, the Everglades <laughs> have have evolved like, like extinction is a part of evolution. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's a part, like and don't get me wrong, I know humans are responsible for a lot of things that shouldn't happen extinction wise, but it's also a part of evolution. The world has evolved with that stuff gone. You can't just bring it back. Well, I think humans get blamed for a little too much. I mean, if you want to yeah. bring up the the woolly mammoths and mastodons and the and the megafauna from the last ice age, you know, a lot of our theories in that I think are absolute garbage. I think they're just, um, you know, like the Clovis first people, like that that whole theory is, which is widely accepted by the way, is founded upon one tool that they found in a cave somewhere. And with that one tool, they came up with this big story about how people crossed the land bridge from Russia and Alaska, came down, and you know this the Clovis people, and that's how they that's how we populated the the Americas. And it's like off of one tool, you got all that because you found a tool like yeah. And and if you try to refute it with any of the new evidence that's coming out on, not to get too off topic, you are fought. You, I mean, they will fight you tooth and nail. The it is so hard to change the established historical belief or archaeological belief when these things get established like that. It is so hard to change the tide on it, and in the face of obvious, obvious evidence. But going back to like the megafauna dying out, it's often said that when the Clovis people came down, they hunted these giant megafauna to extinction. So you're telling me. A handful of people that survived crossing the land bridge, which, mind you, short-faced bears were a thing. A large predatory bear, larger than polar bears, larger than our current grizzlies, long-legged, long-snout. These are chase-down, prey, kill, eat animals. Like These aren't your scavenger, blueberry-eating bears. These are predatory bears. So they survived that. They survived saber-toothed cats. We had an American lion, which is bigger than the African lion, on the Great Plains of North America. That lived. We had a North America cheetah. We had all sorts of stuff that could kill primitive man pretty easily. We went down there with sticks and stone chip spears and hunted these things to extinction. Mm -hmm. Please tell me how realistic that sounds. Yeah. Not a chance. But we do know that there was some sort of great cataclysmic event an impact probably that you know that's that's what wiped everything out but it's just so easy to to have this like self-loathing humans are all bad always bad always have been bad we're the worst thing for this this planet mm -hmm. you know we can also be the best thing for this planet because i don't yeah. see any elephants out there forming any wild turkey federations and trout unlimited i don't see any elephants out there setting land aside um to increase habitat you know, there's only one animal on this planet doing that, and that's humans. So yeah. as as much hate as we get for destructive stuff, and we are destructive. I'm not saying that we're not. We yeah. do a lot of pollution. We do a lot of, you know, collectively we do a lot of shitty things to the earth, but we also do a lot of great things for the earth. Mm -hmm. and we're, the only, we're the only animal that has that foresight and the ability to do that stuff. So, you know, 
I don't know what you do with all that information. That was a really weird rant hey. that I just went on. <laughs> but that's how my brain works, all right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It, it definitely, I haven't thought about it that way myself either. We are the only animal that does that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you, like I said, and you, you reiterated, like we we're trying to get back. And in some places, I really like that reintroduction thing. Not so much with the mammoths, but you know, um, if we can bring things back to a natural state where it's a well balanced, where it works for people and wildlife, I'm all for it. You know, these natural crossings over freeways. This, you know, there was a there's a project being pitched out there. Um, about like restoring the Great Plains, you know, building the next great national park system, you know, as these really small rural towns are, are dying off in the Great Plains because the just the, the commerce isn't there anymore. You know, the people living there are just because they lived there for their entire life and they don't want to move anywhere. But when, when they, unfortunately, you know, people get old, they die, and those houses come up for sale and nobody's buying them um, instead of some giant corporate farm buying them and, raising more corn for ethanol that we don't need um these projects are starting to buy up those properties and they're starting they're trying to link together this vast network of land where then they can just let that go back to the way the great plains were like i think that would be sweet you know Mm -hmm. start building our freeway systems to go up and over it and then you have these places where you can pull off and have these overlooks and you could see giant herds of bison and elk you know before elk were hunted to near extinction um, by man, like I said, I'm, we're, we're not, I'm not absolving humans from doing some atrocious acts. Uh, they weren't a mountain species like we see them now. They were out, they were out on the plains, you know, in, in these giant herds. And so I think it would be really cool to get back to a, a place where we could see that, you know, pre-industrialization. Um, to where we market hunted them to the brink of extinction and getting those back to having, you know, wolves and coyotes and foxes out, you know, that whole ecosystem. I think that'd be very cool. Part of that makes sense to me, but going back to what I was saying, where the way we find a chunk of land is how it's always supposed to be here in Minnesota. Well, technically it's Michigan, but I don't know how Michigan got this Island because it's actually closest to Minnesota than anything, but Isle Royal, there's this, you know, this, relationship between the moose and the wolves that they've been studying forever but it's the only natural park in which we actively interfere if the wolf numbers get too low we trap wolves and bring them out there and it's like we get a cold winter cold enough a lot of times the wolves bail they're like we're out of here we didn't want to be here in the first place you know and then the then the moose get overpopulated and they die disease or they overgraze or whatever but the interesting thing about that is that when we found it, it had moose and wolves on it. But if you go through the fossil records, not even that long ago, it used to be a caribou lynx island. So if you're going to mess with it, why not start from scratch and throw some lynx and caribou on there and see how they do? You know what I mean? Like if if, if you're already making it this test tube, well have some fun with it. Try some different stuff. You know what I mean? Bring it back to that. Bring it back to pre-European settlement times when it wasn't wolf and moose. It was lynx and caribou. You know, it's just, I don't know. I I think we're just, we're just really weird like that, that we think however we find it, it should be that way forever. Nothing ever should change. Well, that, Mm -hmm. that is like the most unnatural thing of nature. Nature is, is in constant flux. Like you said, uh, extinction is a natural part of, 
of the cycle. Uh, nature does not favor specialists because it's a dead end. It's an evolutionary dead end. You got koalas. Koala, koalas at some point in time, and even panda bears, they're destined to go extinct. It's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. Long after, even if, if it doesn't happen on our watch, long after humans are here, they will go extinct eventually because they're, it's a dead end. Something will happen, another impact or whatever. Who knows? Who knows? Whatever, something big, giant, climactic change is going to happen. The only thing that has to happen is something happens to their food source. Once that happens, that, that creature is screwed. It's done because it's, it's become a specialist. And that's more things have gone extinct than I've ever lived. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. So we have to remember that too. Not that I want, again, not that I want things to go extinct. I can hear animal lovers and Pete out there right now, just like losing their minds. Not that they listen to my show, but uh, if yeah. they did, they would absolutely be throwing stuff at their computer screen right now. Oh, just losing their mind. He just said that extinction is a good thing. That's not what I said. I did not say it was a good thing. I said, it's something that happens. Big difference. And it'll probably happen to us at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Just a matter of time. Nothing, nothing has lived on this planet for forever, and nothing will. That's just, that's just that. And another tangent. <laughs> what were we talking about? <laughs> trout fishing. That's right. Somehow we went from trout fishing to extinct the megafauna. Not quite sure how I made that jump, but yeah. So, what are your big plans and goals? Um. So I, I'd really love to make Team USA fly fishing sometime in the next decade i would really competitively i'd like to start being a guide being you know a regular client list stuff like that i have a lot of work to do in the near future for all that stuff yeah yeah. well i mean you got you got a plan you're relatively young um i think you're on the right path i mean i'm i'm 47 be 48 in may and i didn't start chasing this guy dream until two years ago you know, I was working a job job and, and finally got to the point where I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like the, mm-hmm. I, I should have been, I should have been chasing the guide thing years ago. You know, even the bass fishing, you know, competitive fishing, like I waited until I could afford a decent boat, you know, and it's not a brand new anything, but I got a, you know, a decent, you know, used Ranger bass boat for $11,000. And then I joined a bass club. I get in the bass club and I find out that there's non-boaters. I was like, what? You're telling me I could have been tournament bass fishing this whole time as a non-boater? Like, how much knowledge did I just mm-hmm. leave on the lake that I could have been, you know, I'd be so much further ahead today if I would have known that when I was 18, when I was 22, but I didn't. So, you know, I had these roadblocks I put in my way, like, oh, I need this, 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 and this before I start competitive fishing or before I try to be a guide, you know, I like – all these things I talked myself out of doing, like who am I? Who am I to guide somebody? You know, blah 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 blah. Um, but you've already, you've already tackled that. You're 22. You know where you want to go. And that's huge. So I give you, I give you credit for that. Like uh, uh, early on, grasping what you want. You know, you're not a, you're not a punch the clock nine to five kind of guy. And that's, that's awesome. That's admirable that that you've realized mm-hmm. that at a relatively young age. So, um, go get it, man. I mean, what do you what are your smaller goals as far as like, how are you going to get to that stage? Um, are there, are there like smaller trout clubs that kind of lead into that kind of how bass fishing works or is it a totally different arena? So base, I can start competing to make team USA. Now um, they have regionals across the country. Once 
they start competing competitions again. So I just have to get into those regionals and place well. Okay. Um, because so, I'm basically already on the circuit. How does that scoring work? Are you going by inches? Is this like a catch photo release kind of a thing? Is there judges that that measure your fish? Yeah, there's judges that measure your fish. So you get 200 points per fish and then 15 points per centimeter. Okay. So number is more important than length, but length can make up for number when, I it, gotcha. gets, when it gets tight. Um, but yeah, you have a judge there that you have to take your fish to. After, after every catch, you have to take it to the bank. They have to make sure the fish is okay. But if, it die, if fish dies, it doesn't count. It's catch and release, all that stuff. Sure. Um Oh, crap what was i just gonna ask all right how are the like the rules as far as like what you can use what you can't use uh equipment wise so all hooks have to be barbless uh no more than three flies uh your leader has to be less than two times your rod length um and your longest rod length can only be 12 foot so at max you can have a 24 foot leader Dude, a twelve foot rod is a, that's a giant rod. Yeah, I use it. I use a ten foot regularly. I, I've used an eleven before. A lot of our streams in the east are too small for eleven, but out west here, eleven would be really nice. Um, lines, um, not really too much restriction on fly lines. Um, just barbless hooks and that stuff. Your okay. beads, you can only use tungs. You can only use a. 4.0 millimeter tungsten beater less. You can't go above that. Okay. You can't have any split shot on your line. It has to be all in the fly. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that's that's interesting. That's good to know. So no sinkers. Nope. <laughs> no sinkers. They don't call them sinkers either. I don't know what they call them, but they don't call them sinkers. Probably just weights, I suppose. They don't, yeah. have, they don't have sinkers and they don't have bobbers, but they do have line indicators and and weights. <laughs> yes, Do you tie any of your own flies? Have you gotten any? I tie all my own flies that I fish. Yeah. All right. That's pretty cool. I, I when I when I guide them. when I guide I like to use other people's flies. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of work that goes into those things. Yeah. I dabbled in it. I, I pretty much um only made woolly buggers because they're super easy. <laughs> but they're effective too though. I mean find a trout that won't eat a woolly bugger dude like those things mm -hmm. like yeah I, this is it's just there a you go bugger. there's a woolly <laughs> bugger right there <laughs> they're they're very effective and i've used them not even fly fishing i've used them in the summer on like my panfish rods you tie one of those things on uh on a slip bobber and a little bit of uh well you will need a sinker you will need a split shot because they're too light to sink on their own but a little bit of that dude the trout or the panfish can't leave those things alone come spring. I mean, those things look just like an emerging, like uh, dragonfly nymph or something, and they just they they can't not eat those things. But that I've had the most luck as far as flies wise on uh, for trout with a woolly bugger for sure. And I don't get crazy. Pretty much black and brown. That's all mm -hmm. you need. You know, maybe an olive green if you want to get crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but and it, that those are the bug colors, right? I mean, that's yeah. stick with what looks like an insect, and you're probably going to get bit. That's pretty much it. But mm -hmm. all right, well, this we're hour and a half into it, so Tyler, I want to thank you for doing this. Um, give everybody your uh, where they can find you and follow along in your adventures. 
So it's just my name. It's at Tyler Olrog, T-Y-L-E-R-O-L-R-O-D-G. That's on Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, all that stuff. All the good so, stuff. Yeah, it's just my name. It's just all underneath my own name. Cool. And your podcast. My podcast, yeah. That, it's called the Tyler Olrog Audio Experience. So just my name, Audio Experience. Um, I do a little bit more than just fishing on there and on some of my other socials I use a little bit more than just fishing too but mostly just a fishing guy yeah okay cool I will uh, I, I didn't know when I contacted you I didn't know that you had the podcast so I, I will check that out and uh, I will post links in the show notes to all that stuff on, uh, on this episode which uh, should drop sometime next week Sounds good, I will man. send you a link yeah, I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, man. absolutely, dude. All right, be well. Tight lines, man. Yeah, tight lines. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.